Grab your Bibles, would you please, and open up to the book of John. John's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book. If you need a Bible, we have them in the back. We'd be more than glad to bring them your direction. Just raise your hand. Mike's back there. He's sort of peeking around and use one. As you're turning to the book of John, I've got a question to ask here. How many photographers do we have in here? Raise your hand if you're a photographer. We have no photographers. We've got one, two. Hey, we've got two, we've got two, we've got three, 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 we've got three, we've got three. It's going to be an auction. Let's get it going. Get forward. I see the hand. Four, four, bid high, now five. The phone does not count. An iPhone is not a photographer. <laughs> That's a nice try there. Appreciate that, Brooke. How many serious photographers do we have in here? Do we have serious photographers? Yep, Tracy is? Okay. That's good to know. See, I don't know, those of you who are used to, I'm going to say you're a serious photographer. If you used to have a 35-millimeter camera that you would take the, uh, the capsules out, you know, the roll of film, and you take them out, and you were taking maybe two or three to be developed if you don't develop yourself on a weekly basis. You're a serious photographer, okay? And I remember those days. I, I'm not calling myself a serious photographer. I did get a blue ribbon in 4-H one time for photography. Check that off my list, okay? Um, but I was always taking capsules, those little, those, those film cartridges, off to, to be developed. I mean, consistent, constantly. You know what my number one pet peeve was about those moments when you got them back? Anybody want to guess? Blurry pictures, thank you. Yes. I mean, you open up, you're like, oh, I can't wait to see vacation, uh, whatever moments it was. Oh, it was out of focus. Oh, no, my thumb was in the way. Out of focus, blurry, blurry. That was so frustrating because with the picture I wanted to capture, that moment I really wanted to, to have there, maybe blow up into a poster size, gone. That moment is gone. Now we have what? Digital cameras, right? And we're able to take that picture, like, just a second. That one was blurry. Let's do another one. Or, you know what? I could take 20 pictures. Out of 20, I'm going to get one that's not blurry. Because what do I do with the others? Delete, 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 delete. I'm not turning them in anymore to somebody to pay money to develop them for me. Oh, so much easier, right? But those pre-digital days, the frustration of a blurry picture, oh, frustrates me. Today, a blurry picture is still an issue. Not so much in photography, but as a Christian, as one who's trying to live for Jesus. But sometimes my life gets a little bit blurry. Things in front of me that I know may be true become blurred, and therefore I have a hard time living for Jesus. And over the next three weeks, we're going to have, go through a sermon series called, having the, it's called The Right Focus. The Right Focus. I want to get us on track. We're going to go with three accounts from Scripture after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, three accounts where Jesus met with people who had the wrong focus. And I believe as Christians, we can relate totally to what's going on there. So we're going to go through those the next three weeks. And, you know, we just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in the days following the crucifixion and resurrection, there were still lives that were out of focus. Look at the person next to you and say they're out of focus. Go ahead. Yeah. And there were people who followed Jesus that were unsure of their faith, and the one whom they followed, life was out of focus for them. Why don't you think about this? Let's go back. I know, it's like, well, Easter was a couple weeks ago. I know, I know, let's go back. We only talk about Easter when? At Easter. We only talk about the resurrection when? At Easter. The, the, the burial at Easter. We only talk about the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Those are two of the greatest stories ever. We should talk about it more often. So we're going to go back for a second. I want you to think about what happened in that moment. 
It's after the crucifixion, the disciples were crushed. Think about it, please. Their faith had taken a strong hit. Their teacher, their rabbi, their Messiah, was taken before their eyes. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was crucified. He was whipped, abused. He was buried. The one they placed their trust in for three years, they walked side by side and said, this is our Messiah. He will lead us into a new kingdom. He's dead. The one whom they loved and spent every moment with for those three years was gone. And they, how they saw him die was horrendous. Children, matter of fact, I'm gonna, you know, kids, some of you, if you're like, I'm sort of listening, but I want to draw, okay? If you're one of those kids, get one of those white placards in the back with some crayons back there, and I'll give you something to draw in a second, okay? If you want to do that. But what they saw was horrendous, and there's no doubt about his death and burial. His death was real. Now, I want you to consider a moment the extent of their culture and our culture, okay? I want you to think about this. Today, typically, a physician, um, a professional pronounces the death of your loved one, and then you go home. The body stays at the hospital, the body's then taken to the mortician to be prepared. The body's given every effort to be made the appearance of life, Right? And then we show up at the viewing, and people look and they say, oh, it looks so good, right? That's what we say. And there's that dignified time, that respected time of viewing, and then there's a great side service in which the whole is concealed, right, by an attractive device that's going to lower the casket. Even the dirt is concealed and covered up with a green carpet, an indoor-outdoor carpet. It's, it's all covered up, again, to make it look nice. Somebody else lowers the casket after we're gone. See, we're spared all the grim realities of death. We really are. We experience it that moment when they die and then the emotions of what's going on, but we don't touch it. Are you following me on this? A few years back, um, I, I was doing a, a funeral service and I'd gotten done. And, and as the graveside service, we lit the casket, said amen. It's at that point in time, usually greet the immediate family and they get up and everybody sort of heads off, heads back to the church for a meal or whatever. Got done, said amen, stepped back, and, and the young man stepped up, little boy stepped up to the casket, and he looked and sort of staring and just watching, and he looked at me, and he goes, this is his great-grandmother, he goes, can I help you drop her in? <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It was, it, was, it was so funny, but at the moment it was, I want to help. I want to participate in this. And it really was actually an awesome moment. Because in some faiths, in some religion, even across in other cultures, that's what they do. We separate ourselves from all that. It was actually a beautiful moment. Much of U.S. and obviously Europe as well, cremation is done. So in that case, nobody even sees the body after death. We don't know what it feels like to touch a corpse is what I'm saying. Now listen carefully. Not the disciples. I want you to think about what happens in that time, in that culture, what they went through, that experience, that moment. When Jesus was lowered from the cross, a secret group of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, had asked for the body. They took his body along with some other women to prepare his body for burial. You have to think about this. As gruesome as his body was and mutilated as it was, they pulled it off the cross, holding it, carrying it. And then here's the steps they had to do next with the body of Christ. They had to flex and massage the arms in order to relieve the rigor mortis that had taken place, which the arms would have been stuck in the V position, so they had to relax it so they could bring his arms down. They had to wash his body and cleanse it from all that had happened with the blood and the dirt. 
They anointed it with oil before wrapping it in a single linen cloth. Then they took a separate napkin to go around the top of his head to keep his jaw shut. They wrapped his body head to toe in long strips of linen, which had been soaked in a, a mixture of spiced resin. And then they took 75 to 100 pounds of heavily scented spices. They used that to offset the smell of uh, decomposing, from decomposing. Let me get that word out this morning. Then they laid him on the shelf in the tomb. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Back in that day, if you were a family member and somebody passed away, you were hands-on. You were cradling that body. You were taking care of that body. You were preparing that body. There was nobody else taking care of it, and you just showing up and saying, oh, they look nice. You were doing it all. And then a year later would pass, and the body would probably be completely decayed by then. You would open up that tomb again. You would take the bones out, and you would place them in a family ossuary, which is a, a bone box, along with those of your ancestors. You were very involved in the burial and death of a family member. That's what the disciples were going through. We sort of have that little barrier between us and death. You follow me? Due to keeping the Sabbath day, though, the burial process was rushed. According to Luke chapter 24, 1, some of the women returned then to the tomb to complete the burial process. They were coming back. We've got to finish this process, what started. With that spice resin they'd prepared. They wondered this, how are we going to get in? Who's going to remove the stone? Kids, if you could, if you got the whiteboard, go ahead and draw a picture of that tomb, that cave that Jesus was buried, but make sure you draw it with a stone rolled away. And make sure there's nothing in there because it's empty. Let me hear everybody say it's, it's empty. Let me hear you say that. It's empty. That's the good news. That's what we celebrate, right? But can you imagine that moment? They're showing up, not wondering. They had to be wondering, how are we going to get in there? The stone is still there. There's Roman guards there. There's the temple police there. We've got all these guards there and the stone. We don't know. We're just showing up to take care of the body. But when they got there, what did they find? Stone had been completely tossed off to the side. The soldiers were unconscious, according to Scripture, and they're there, right? And then they fled. Can you imagine that moment? We can't, can we? Let me help you. A couple days after a funeral you go back to the cemetery of that loved one of yours and put flowers on their site. But you show up and there's a hole. The dirt's been tossed off to the side all over the place. There's the casket. The casket open. Nobody's in it. What's your first thought? Somebody took the body. Right? That's our first thought. Somebody took the body. That was their first thought. Somebody took the body. They even said, sir, if you know where they placed him, please tell me. Right? Isn't that what Mary said? And from here we have the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of the women reporting to the disciples, two angels appearing to the other women. They were fearful of what they witnessed. They were fearful of what they witnessed. We sort of forget about this too in the resurrection story. You need to remember that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead and the followers. The Roman soldiers were tired of these religious leaders and all the hassles that they were bringing to this area because it made them look bad. So if we can also produce the body of Jesus and get rid of these Jesus followers, this will be good. So if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you've got two sets of people looking for you right now. There's a reason to fear that you could be taken and crucified as well. The disciples, Peter and John, rushed to the empty tomb. They found nothing. Peter and John saw it, right? But when John saw it, he believed. And as if he turned to Peter and said, he's alive. He's alive. And what did they do? They rushed back. They left the tomb. Then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, right? 
Turn with me now to John chapter 20. Let's pick up the story here. John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 11, Mary is standing outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she, she stooped and she looked in. She saw two white-robed angels sitting at the head and the foot of the place where the body of Jesus was lying. Why are you crying, the angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She glanced over her shoulder, she saw, her shoulder and she saw someone standing beside her. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, you've taken him away. Tell me where you put him. I'll go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned toward him and exclaimed, teacher. You know, they, they point in time, Mary gets it. She sees Jesus. So now they all gather and they assemble together, right? They all come in and the disciples are coming into an upper room. It could have been the upper room where they had the last supper. We don't know. We're not sure. A lot of people believe it was. They discuss. Now, I want you to picture this. The disciples in there are talking. Hey, hey, we went. We went there. It's, it's empty. It's empty. Hey, we didn't see anything. We heard there's rumors. There's a big earthquake. There's, there's talk now that this body's gone. Where is he? And I don't know. And there's a lot of talk. And then Mary comes in. She goes, I saw him. I saw him. I spoke with him. So there's probably a lot of conversation going on in that room, right? Doors are shut. The doors are locked for fear of persecution. The discussion's getting louder. They're trying to convince those who weren't at the empty tomb in the midst of all that's happening that he's gone, that he's risen from the dead. And in the moment of that loud conversation, all they suddenly hear this, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Turn to John now, uh, same chapter, look at verse 19, sorry. Verse 19 of John chapter 20. That evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them, Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he held out his hands for them to see, and he showed them his side. They were filled with joy when they saw their Lord. He spoke to them again and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he breathed on them. It's God's Spirit just breathed on them. And he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. What an incredible moment. As they were just pondering and wondering and arguing and talking and saying, what's going on? He's not there. He's alive. I don't know if he's alive. Somebody took his body and there's all this conversation and boom, Jesus there. Peace be with you. Kids, if you've got a whiteboard, draw a picture of maybe what the disciples' face looked like, okay? It's probably going to be one of those, right, mouth open, eyes wide, you know, big saucers like, right? When all this took place, listen, there was somebody who wasn't there. Thomas. One of the 12 disciples was not there. When he returned to Galilee, for fear of maybe what was going on, he left. He went to Galilee, left Jerusalem. He comes back. He walks into the midst of all this. Look at verse 24. One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. What's his nickname? The twin. Okay, just want to come back, okay? He was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers in them and place my hand into the wounds in his side. Eight days later, let me hear you say eight days. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas was with them. 
the doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Remember that from before? Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand in my wound and my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Believe. My Lord, my God, exclaimed Thomas. He gets it. It's real. Jesus is alive. You know, everyone Thomas met told him the story of the empty tomb. Thomas, it's empty, it's empty, it's empty. The bizarre way in which the grave clothes were left, the dazzling appearance of the angels, their personal encounter with the risen Lord. And yet Thomas said what? I won't believe it until I what? See it, right? I want to see the nail wounds in his head. I want to see the wound in his side. I'm not believing until I see it. Thomas didn't have what the other ladies have. I want you to think about this because a lot of time we look at people who don't believe in Jesus and we say, how can you not believe? We ask that, don't we, sometimes? How can people do this without God in their life? Let me share something with you. Thomas didn't have what the ladies had. They heard the good news from an angel. They had an encounter with an angelic being, right? They had an encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. Thomas didn't have that. Thomas didn't have what the other disciples had, which was a visit to the empty tomb. Thomas hadn't been to the tomb. He didn't see that it was empty. All that evidence, he didn't have. Thomas didn't have the opportunity to be in the room with the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. He wasn't there. It's the same today. We've seen God. I've seen God. Now, okay, face to face, no. But I've seen God at work in my life. I've seen God do amazing things. So do I believe in the risen Savior? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I've seen his hand at work, and so have you. And you believe that. You've seen God at work too. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. So it's easier for you to believe. There's people who don't believe because he's like, I don't know, I haven't seen it. Actually, they probably have, but they haven't realized it's God at work. So let's not do be harsh. Let's not be too harsh on Thomas for doubting. He, he saw it all. Remember, think about this. The arrest, the beating, the abuse, crucifixion, death. He heard Jesus' last words. He heard it. He saw it. His heart was broken. His faith was tested. Disappointed, fearful, he fled for his home in Galilee. He left. He grieved in solitude. The other disciples had each other. He's on his own, weeping over what he lost. While the others gathered in Jerusalem, you know, he had to be asking himself these questions. Was Jesus real? He probably asked that question. Was this just an embarrassing thing to follow a so-called Messiah who's now dead? Did I place my faith in somebody who was a joke? Did I walk around with somebody for three years who was a fake? He was probably asking himself all these questions. He returns to Jerusalem. Now he hears all these stories that Jesus is alive. So should he really open his heart and believe again? Or am I just going to get crushed again? Should I really trust this? Last time I trusted him, look where it got me. You know anybody like that? You know anybody in your life, maybe yourself, who you used to have such a strong faith, and vibrant faith, or used to go to church and then something happened in your life that caused you to doubt God, caused you to doubt whether your faith was real. So you just sort of checked off church and said, I'm not going back. I'm not trusting that again. That hurt too much to believe it and then see this and it didn't happen. So-and-so passed away in my life. Where was God? 
I lost my job. I lost this. Where was God? Oh, I've seen all this misery. Where was God? He must not be a part of my life anymore, so I'm not going to believe in him. Sounds like Thomas. Those moments of doubt, right? We probably know people like that. It was, it was in pain and hurt that Thomas doubted. And that one, think about this, that one moment of doubting in his life gave him a nickname that would stick with him for a thousand, couple thousand years. We all know him as what? Doubting Thomas, right? You name off all the disciples, you get to Thomas, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Doubt, right? What was his nickname? Let's go back to Scripture. What was his nickname in Scripture? The twin. Everybody say, hey, twin Thomas. No, we call him Doubting Thomas. One moment in history changed his name forever. Isn't it awesome that God forgives? And even though people may see us one way, God sees us another. To God, he's not Doubting Thomas. Imagine that moment of facing his friends and convincing Thomas and his doubt. He's not alive. Quit it. Has anybody been watching that AD series that's been on TV? Maybe you've seen it. Okay. I watched that one scene, and then again, they take their liberty and freedom and sort of putting out there what happened. And there's some, I'm sitting there, I was, I was barking at, yes, I was barking at, it was eight days later when Thomas showed up. It said in scripture, eight days, not like 20 minutes later. Anyway. But I can imagine that scene when he's there, frustrated with the rest of the disciples. They're trying to convince him. And he's like, like quit trying to convince me. He's dead, you know. And then Jesus shows up. He says, what again? Peace. Peace be with you. I love it. Jesus wasn't hard on Thomas for his doubts. He's like, Thomas, why are you doubting? Oh, I knew I should have picked you as one of my twelve. He didn't do that, did he? Despite his skepticism, Thomas was still loyal to the believers and to Jesus himself. Some people need to doubt before they believe. Think about this. If doubt leads to questions, what do questions lead to? Answers. Answers are when the, and when answers are accepted, doubt is erased. Doubt has done a good work when it leads to answers and they're believed. It's when doubt becomes stubbornness. That's when we have an issue. It's when that stubbornness then becomes a lifestyle that doubt harms faith. You cannot live a lifestyle of doubt and have faith. You just can't do that. When you doubt, you don't stop there. Let your doubt deepen your faith. As you continue to search for the answer. Poor Thomas, he's remembered as the one who doubted, but he deserves really to be one who should be respected and forgiven for his mistake. He was a doubter, but listen, that doubt had a purpose. He wanted to know the truth. Thomas didn't idolize his doubts. It wasn't like, hey, I'm a, I'm a doubter. I don't, I don't believe in this. He didn't like walk around saying, hey, I'm one who doesn't believe in God. He didn't idolize that. He gladly received and believed when given the reason to do so. His doubt changed to back to no doubt to faith when Jesus showed up. He didn't keep arguing. His doubt led him to answers, and he trusted that. He expressed his doubts fully, had them completely answered, and that was sort of his way of responding, not his way of life. Let's not forget in John chapter 11. You don't need to turn there, but if you, you want, you can. But John chapter 11, verses 14 to 16 there's that moment when Jesus with his disciples, and he goes, we're going to go back and see Lazarus now. 
he's dead. You guys all know my, my friend Lazarus, I love him, but he's dead. And they're like, no, we don't want to go. We don't want to go because remember those people wanted to stone you and they wanted to kill you. Who stepped up and said, let's all go and die together? That was who? The twin, Thomas. Not doubting Thomas. It's not like a doubter. He's the only one that stepped up. Do we remember him for that? Nope. It was Thomas who said, let's all go. Oh, did we forget about all the other people in the Bible who doubted? Do we call Abraham doubting Abraham? When he was told he'd be a father at an old age or doubting Sarah when she laughed? I'm going to be a mom? What? That ain't going to happen. How about Moses when he was told to return to Egypt to lead his people out? He doubted God and all the Israelites all those moments as they traveled when they doubted God. How about Gideon when he was told he'd be a judge and a leader? Or Zechariah in the book of Luke when he told that he would be a father at an old age. The Bible is full of people who doubted in their moments, but in those moments they trusted God and they moved forward in faith. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21, the disciples experienced another time of doubt. The disciples came to Jesus. They had forgotten to bring any food. They only had one loaf of bread with them. They're crossing the lake. Jesus sort of started teaching them again. They began to argue with each other because they didn't bring any bread. Why didn't you, you're supposed to bring the bread. Why didn't you bring the bread? I just want to bring cheese and nuts, but I forgot the cheese and nuts too. Well, great. We have nothing but now but a loaf of bread and 12 of us, and we're really hungry. We make 13 now, actually, with Jesus here. A lot of arguing going on, right? Jesus goes, why are you arguing about bread? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Don't you remember anything at all? I just fed 5,000. With what? A couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. I fed 5,000. There's a handful of us in a boat with one loaf. We got a smorgasbord here, right? They all doubted. How could they witness so many of Jesus' miracles and still be so slow in comprehending who Jesus was? We can doubt. Now listen, family. We can doubt without having a lifestyle of doubt. Doubt encourages rethinking. Its purpose is to sharpen the mind and change it, right? Doubt can be used to pose a question, but only pose a question to what? Get an answer. If you've got doubts this morning about God, about Jesus Christ, His Son, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, let me tell you something right now. Good. Ask those questions so you can get the answers. But don't be stubborn in your doubt. Don't be fearful of, well, what if God, what if... Ask the question. Seek out the answers. There's no emotion. You know, I've heard this before. Doubt is one foot lifted up in the air, neither moving forward nor backward, but it's one foot lifted up in the air. And there's no motion until the foot comes down. The thing for a Christian is when we start doubting and we lift that foot up, we need to ask questions and step forward in faith when we have those doubting moments. Thomas didn't stay in his doubt, but he allowed Jesus to bring him to believe. Take encouragement also from the fact that countless other followers of Christ struggled with doubt. And the answers that God gave them may help you too. That's why we read the Bible and we see how God answered those questions and encouraged those who doubted, encouraged those who had fear. Silent doubts rarely find answers. You need to ask the questions. Let me give you some real quick points here, okay? First of all, know this. Doubt is not from God. Okay? 
Genesis 3, we see that Satan raises doubt within us. Let me read to you from uh, Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible. Serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Eve, this question. Now listen to this, what he said. Did God really say this? That's how he started the question. Did God really say? Let me finish what he said. That you must not eat the fruit from any of the tree in the garden? Of course we can eat from any fruit in the tree in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. That wasn't true. If you do, you'll die. And then the serpent says, what? You won't die? God knows that your eyes are going to be open. You'll be like God. You'll know both good and evil. The serpent started placing doubt into the woman's heart. This is what happens. When seeds of doubt are placed into our hearts, it's not a good thing. Doubt does not come from God. Here's the second thing you know about doubt. Doubt causes us to forfeit peace with God. As soon as you are doubting, guess what? Your peace with God dwindles. Because what happened after Adam and Eve committed that sin? They were separated from God. And what they had as far as a relationship with God in that garden, they walked with God in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. What a beautiful thing. But after that moment, it's gone. It's gone. Here's the other thing. Doubt causes us to physically become unstable. As soon as things start happening up here, guess what happens? It sort of flows out here. Turn with me to the book of James chapter 1. Now, you're in the book of John. Head towards the back of the Bible. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. If you get the Revelation, you've gone way too far. Actually, not way too far. It's gone far. James back, uh, chapter 1. James chapter 1, it says this, But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver, for a person who with, with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They're unstable in everything they do. See, when you doubt, don't expect God to be answering you. Your loyalty is divided. You're being tossed around like that wave. You see what it said? A doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When your mind is doubting things, guess what's happened? It's causing the rest of your body to follow suit. Just watch a wave sometime in the boats or anything on an ocean. When the waves are tossing, guess what else is being tossed? Everything on that water. When your mind is being tossed around, guess what follows suit? Everything else in your body. People won't go on mission trips. Why? Well, because they're wondering if this is really what I should do. People won't make decisions in church because they're fearful what that decision might do. People won't share their faith with other people because I wonder what they would say about me. Do you see how doubt paralyzes us from moving forward physically? We cannot allow doubt to be planted and then take seed and grow because it just unstabilizes everything in our faith. It's amazing. What starts here in the mind comes out in action. So doubt needs to be combated with trusting truth. And what is truth? Everybody grab the Bibles. You might have an iPad. You might have an iPhone that you're following right now with your Scripture. Uh, you have a Bible. Grab it right now. Hold it up. You want to know what truth is? This is truth right here. This is truth. How many of you are memorizing truth every day? Or are you picking up other things and reading it and memorizing that? Psalm 119. Let this be your uh, homework for the week. And I'm going to go homework because that sounds bad, right, kids? Let this be an, an awesome challenge for you. An encouragement is to read Psalm 119. Just read it through, read it through. Psalm 119. You see how the psalmist just loves meditating on God's Word. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, We're human, and we don't wage war as humans do. 
hey, believers, wake up. We don't fight like other people do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts. We take them captive and teach them what is true in Jesus Christ. This is what we do. You want to know how to get that doubt out of here, those fears out of here? You grab truth and you read it. You memorize it. You meditate on it. This is truth. Can you imagine when the disciples are sitting around saying, he's not there, his body's not there. Where's he at? Where's he at? Somebody in the room probably said, don't you remember what he said? Truth. I'm coming back in three days. Truth. Remember what I taught? Don't you remember what I said? If we don't remember what Jesus said, you will live in doubt. We must be better stewards of God's word in our time and getting into God's word. Landon, you're at 9.57 when you ended. Where are you at? Where's your hand? There you are. 9.57 when you ended. It's a good thing we have a church service. You guys probably would have went until noon, okay? But that's when you're being discipled. When you want to learn more, you're feasting there. You're looking at God's Word and say, I want to keep learning. I want to keep learning. It's important that we spend time in God's Word. Ephesians 4.23 says, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts. Let God's Spirit get in here and start working it. Colossians 3.10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator. And how do you learn about your Creator, about God? By getting into His Word. God's Word brings a supernatural cleansing and it washes the mind and the conditions that contaminate us from this world, the memories of past experiences, the lies that come your way. We get them all the time. This week, we got it again. Here's a lie about you, Rex. You better believe it, right? It's so frustrating and disappointing for somebody to think something about me and to say something about me, not put their name to it. And I look at that and I start believing. It's like, that's not true. That's not true. What is true about me? And I got to pick this up and remember what God says about me and what I should be doing for him. Amen? Satan knows that empty heads are easier to deceive. You know that? That's why he loves it when he finds a believer who's made no effort at all to fill their mind with God's word. Satan says, empty mind. Let's go for it. Let me start pouring lies in there. The devil knows he's found another empty head just waiting for him to come along and fill it with his lies. We can't let our minds be empty. We can't let our minds wander. Who or what's going to control your mind? God and his word or the enemy and his lies? You get the choice. I get to come up here and encourage you to do the right thing, to listen to the right thing. Truth is, we got things around us that, that throw us off and we forget about what is true because we're so fearful of our circumstances and our surroundings. This past week, I used this illustration with a bunch of kids. I need about three or four uh, kids to come up here right now. Come on up. Just come up. I don't care how many come. You can all come, okay? You're going to help me? I'll stand right over there, okay? Any more want to come up? Come on up. You're going to do it real simple. Just walk across the board. Just walk right across it. Like a balance beam, right? Very simple, right? Go ahead and keep going. Yeah, it's easy as a caveman can do it, right? It's like a good guy commercial. Okay, so let's do this again. I want you to come across. This time when you come across, when you come, I want you to stop about three-quarters of the way through, and then I want you to back it up, and then I want you to go forward, okay? Can you do that for me? See if you can do it. Go forward. Good. Nice. Go for it. Next. Back it up. Awesome. Ah, that's all right. You're at the edge. Go for it. Yeah, I see uh, high schoolers do this with baseball cleats on. It's a little challenging. Nice. Very good. Come on back. Go forward. Do a dance. Okay, no, okay, good. Nice job. High fives. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. Stay up here. Stay up here for a second. Okay. Was that easy or hard? Easy? Now, what if we took this and we put it up on a cylinder block about this high off the ground? Would you still do it? 
All of you? Okay, what if it did it um, about this high off the ground? Would you still walk across it? What if we made the board twice as long? Would you still do it? All of you? Okay. Don't fall into peer pressure now. Okay. Uh, let's go eight feet up on a step ladder, um, twice as long as the board. How many of you are still going to do it? Raise your hand. Oh, got two and a half feet now. Okay. All right. All right. I'm asking the Rupa boys. Why am I thinking that? Okay. So let's take this board and let's go from one light fixture across the other light fixture. Nothing below but a hard ground, uh, maybe a pool of sharks and some flesh-eating piranha. Okay. Are you still going to do it? Yes or no? Of course you are. <laughs> Anybody out here going to do that? Raise your hand. Just curious. Adults? Any adults? I lost y'all. Okay. Nice job. You guys can have a seat. Thank you. Okay. Here's the amazing thing. Let me ask you something. And you don't have to answer this out loud. Okay. But a lot of times we lose confidence in what is true because there's things around us that plant doubt into our minds. See, I throw this board down, and that board doesn't change. I can walk across this all day long, front, back. I can go sideways, do a little karaoke, whatever, going across, back and forth. No big deal, right? And all of you would probably say, that's easy. So easy. I could probably blindfold, do it as well. Might lose a little bit of balance on that blindfold part, but could still do this. But the thing is, as we raised it, there's a little bit more of a risk, right? A little bit greater of a cost if we fall, right? So fewer and fewer people are on board to do this. Do you realize that the greater the value, the greater the cost? If we want an awesome church, it's going to cost us something. If you want incredible faith, it's going to cost you something. Anybody can do this, right? But when you raise up things around you, it's going to be a little bit tougher. And in our minds, we start thinking, I can't do this. Because if I fail, the fall is too far. If I blow it, people will laugh at me even more. And so for some reason, we don't take risks because our confidence gets smaller because doubt gets bigger, right? That's what happens. As you raise this board, confidence goes down. Cost goes up, doubt goes higher, and all of a sudden, nobody's doing it anymore once it gets up that high, right? Let me share something with you. This board never changed. Your feet never changed. If you can walk this across the floor, you can walk it across there. It's just an amazing thing. But in our mind, something happened. Everything around us changed. See, if we took this board, we put it across, light fixture to light fixture, and put a fake floor right underneath the board. You'd walk across. You wouldn't even think about it. If you didn't know that underneath that fake floor is a 30, 40-foot drop, you wouldn't even be thinking about it. You'd walk across, matter of fact, like, hey, watch this. You know? And you do all kinds of stuff, right? But then you take out that fake floor, and you're like, and you're like grabbing for everything. Why am I here, right? See, the perception of what took place around has changed everything. Jesus never changed. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow, but the disciples, their faith wavered. Why? Because of the circumstances of what happened to Jesus. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should have every confidence in the world that we can live by faith, not by sight. Live in a way that honors Him. And when doubt and fear starts coming in, you know, doubt and fears, it's just that stuff around us that we got focused on. We forgot. We've lost focus. That's why it's so important that when doubt and fear start creeping in, you better get into God's Word. Push that out. 
and let God's word reign in your mind and in your heart. That's what helps us in these moments of doubt. Get the right focus with that. Worship team, would you please come forward? As the worship team comes forward, I want to challenge us. Listen, the future of this church, I'm not just talking about a building boat, okay? Understand, this sermon, I knew I was going to be preaching this sermon months ago before I even knew we were voting on this day, okay? This sermon is not about vote with trust. This sermon is about live. Live with confidence. Live with trust. This has nothing to do with the, with the building. This has our, us personally, individually living for Jesus Christ. No more fear. No more doubt. Live in truth. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for this morning we've had the chance to worship you in song and scripture. Lord, I want to thank you for many who are here today for various reasons. The biggest reason, because we came to worship the God of this universe, you. Some people came as visitors, checking out the church. I'm so glad they're here. Lord, I hope and pray that today was a tremendous day in which we heard truth. God, you love us so much, you want to have a relationship with us, but that relationship has been hindered by sin, by the mistakes we made in our life. Because of that, we can't have a good relationship with you. We can try to work and do all the good things, but that doesn't, doesn't matter. It's by grace we've been saved, through faith, not our works. So God, if we're sitting here this morning, we don't have things right with you. Lord, help us right now where we're at to pray to you and ask for forgiveness to get things right. If we're in here this morning and we do have faith in you, but we've been struggling with doubt and fear, Lord, I ask right now that you remove that fear, you remove that doubt, and Lord, help us in our hearts to say, God, today I want to commit to getting into your word more. I want to memorize scripture. I want to meditate on scripture. I'm going to stop watching all these things and listening to people who are always planting doubt in my mind. I want to surround myself with that which is true. Lord, help us to have the right focus, to not worry about the circumstances that surround us or the situation that bothers us, but help us to focus on what is true, the foundational truth that we stand on. Your word does not change you're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For that, we can place our faith in you and live victoriously for you. Lord, we love you. We want to sing to you now, Lord. We want to worship you and you alone. In thy name we pray.